All right, so today is September the 9th, 2012, and the title of today's message is Wholehearted. Now, a lot of things come to mind when you hear the word wholehearted, but because I have uh, a very pictorial way of learning, I decided to include some media, just three or four pictures to help us get this idea of what wholehearted is. So, Joe, if you could pull up the first picture. Now, if you can see very closely here, this is a lady uh, about to step off into the recess of a gorge with only a bungee cord tied to her. If you can see her face, she's not laughing. <laughs> she's screaming her head off. Uh, I, I love this picture because how many times have we been confronted with doing God's will, and this is exactly what it looks and feels like. I'm going to step off that edge. <laughs> but you're holding on to that rope. You know it's going to trust or, or sustain. All right, the second one. Now, he looks like just one heart with legs and feet. But I pulled up this picture because this is an example of some of the results when you go wholehearted without the help of anabolic steroids. Um, as you can see on the side, he has one, two, three, four, five 45-pound rings on one side with a 25. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of 415, maybe 500 pounds. Well, I'm sure at the age of five, he wasn't able to do this. But this image is one that separates the boys from men. And what it takes to get there is a wholehearted devotion of working out on a daily basis. Amen? Amen. So, I'm not saying we're aspiring to look like him, but spiritually, yes, everybody get bowed up. So, third picture. This is my favorite. <laughs> now, if you can tell, this is our very own Malachi Lamb <laughs> at a baby shower. And, and this is really the pinnacle of wholehearted. Because you have, well, you <laughs> passion is able to then connect itself to follow through. And that follow-through will bring your face fully inside of a cupcake into God's all-consuming element of who He is. I, I love this picture. I, get, oh, Zeke does that. He absolutely does. Yes. There's no in-between of this licking the icing like my girls. We're going to eat paper and all of the cupcake. So if, if you don't leave with anything today but... This image and the word wholehearted, and this is how we're to be with Jesus, uh, we have done our job in impressing the word of God into your minds. You all agree? Amen. But how about this? Let's add a little bit more to that. You all ready? Okay, please turn on the lights. <laughs> well, living a life that is, that is wholehearted is something that we all aspire to. I think everyone does. And whether it be uh, in workplace, school, whatever we set our hands to. I don't think anybody sets out and says, I'm going to put all my effort into this so I can fail. We're anticipating success. But the fact is, wholehearted, being wholehearted has a process. It's no different than, let's say, one of these young men up here. Their dreams or aspirations of being an NFL football player or being something great in the kingdom of God 
can look a lot like them walking up to that bench full of weights that you saw that guy with and say, I am ready right now to bench press 450 or 500 pounds. We could easily see they're not fit, they're not ready, but their goal, their heart's desire is good. Our heart's desire to complete the task that God gives us, no matter how great or how small, requires this process of wholehearted devotion. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you some of those processes. Y'all ready? Y'all alive today? Yeah. Yeah. There we go. All right. So we got first, we got commitment that precedes revelation. The first step in being wholehearted is being committed even though you do not understand. So commitment precedes revelation. Second, gathering our daily bread. Doing what we need to do, committed to do, on a daily basis. Third, having a firm grip. So like you saw that guy with the weights, he was committed to working out, committed to suffering, before he fully understood what he would be able to do with the end result. On a daily basis, he worked out. He put in the time, the effort, the energy, the sacrifice to get to the point that he was. And lastly, he is to that point so that he has the strength and ability to grab hold of the heavy weight that God puts in front of him and manage it in a right way. Y'all see this process? Now, we can't skip any one. And I want to show you through a biblical model, but also walked out on a daily basis here of how you get there. So first, we're going to start with commitment precedes revelation. Let's go to John chapter 6. Let me know when you're there. Start in verse 1, we'll go to verse 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. I'm going to pause real quick. There is nothing extra in the word or in the phrasing from the authors of these books. If they put this, it's for a very good reason. So I want you to take a very good mental note that he is saying this is Passover. Therefore, Passover elements are going to be echoed from that point further down. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now I just want to pause real quick before we read the next verse. Don't read ahead. Don't cheat. I'll throw you out of this class. Jesus is asking a question to the disciples about provision for a multitude of people. As you see in the next verse, He's more than capable of understanding exactly how it's going to be done. But how many times have we been put in this position where God is looking into our motives, our hearts, our understanding by putting us in a situation where it's a lot like him asking a question of how to provide for something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. What this looks like is going up and praying for somebody in a wheelchair. What this looks like is being faithful to God in our finances in the midst of not having enough 
for some of the other, even legitimate areas of our life that we need to pay for. There's lots of different facets to this. But Jesus is asking a question about provision, and he's asking it to his disciples. So let's read the next verse. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So let's paint a, a, or use a big highlighter here. We have Passover tones. We have great multitude. We have feeding of the multitude and the word test. Are we beginning to build a certain theme and story? A lot like Israel coming out of the desert, being delivered, and then having to depend upon God on a daily basis to be fed. All this stuff in here is not extra. It is laden as a multifaceted jewel with richness that we can draw from. All right. Are you all there? Amen. All right, so how many loaves were, were given by the young boy? Five. Five. How many fishes? Two. So God, or Jesus took five loaves, two fishes, thanked the Father, and fed the entire multitude. You guys know me, man. I've done a lot of crawfish boils, crab boils, jambalayas. I have never seen this in my entire life. If there's ever anything that Cassidy and I worry the most about when it comes to a get-together is how and where are we going to feed all these people? And so we overshoot. And what Philip replies with, he says, you know, look, even all this money wouldn't buy enough for everyone to take just one bite. Not even enough. But in God, and committing to his plan and purpose before we understand the outcome, gives us the ability to feed the multitudes or do what we are not able to do in and of ourselves. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's skip ahead to verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely is this the prophet who is to come in the world? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I want you to think about the early parts of your walk. I'm just that's going to give you some grace and leeway into this. How many times in Jesus have we tried to take God's eventual plan and force it to become king ahead of its time? Amen. And God began to withdraw. He began to retract. And then what felt like him abandoning his purpose for your life was actually him saving you from messing it all up in the first place. So this is a physical representation of what, who we are. A lot like what Cass preached. We're looking into the word for a reflection of dirt, a reflection of who we are in the word. And we so many times want to make ourselves Jesus, right? We want to be the savior. We want to be the one that believes God. But if we're honest, a lot of times we're just looking for the miracles and not the man. We're looking for the byproduct and not the source. So, Let's skip ahead to verse uh, 22. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away, gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, 
They got into the boats and went to Capernaum to search for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? What would be a typical response to that? Oh, yesterday or a couple hours ago. Just, you know, useful conversation. But look how Jesus replies. Jesus answered, I'll tell you the truth. You are looking for me, but not because, uh, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're just seeking after me for what's good for you. Not after me. Not after my father. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? That's an honest question. I think all of us ask that on a, on a continual basis. What must we do to obey God and fulfill the purpose and requirements he has for our lives. What, what must we do for eternal life? This very simple answer came. Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Everybody say this. This. Into the microphone. To believe in the one he has sent. Everybody say to believe. believe. We've studied uh, several times over and over again and for right uh, for good, good measure, belief is action-based. Can anybody tell me what the Greek word for belief is that we've studied? It starts with a P. Pistis. Pistis. Now, this Greek word does imply action, but it's more about intellectual acknowledgement. If you think about it, well, yeah, if you think about it, if you pistis it, then you're, we're able to see that a lot of that mindset has infiltrated our understanding of walking and being wholehearted with God. Because wouldn't you say that you would sit at a desk and learn from a professor and everything he would tell you as an expert in a field, you would believe wholeheartedly. That's where we're trained. You would believe him wholeheartedly about the topic he's sharing the, the details on. Because he has the credentials, he intellectually shows a grasp of the idea. But a Jewish mind, they would not grab what he had to say wholeheartedly until they saw him demonstrate that he had the ability to walk this out. So, we have pistis. Does anybody know the, the Hebrew word? Immuna. Immuna. I want to share with you guys this. So, for your notes, pistis is 4102. However, this one term of belief here in John 6 29 is Greek, I mean, Strong's number 4100. It's derived from Pistis. It's just a slight variance. And it means a firm persuasion, a conviction, or belief. So here's what I did we got this wonderful tool that we can take the Greek words used in the Newer Testament, link them to the Older Testament to see how an equivalent would be used in Hebrew through what we call the Septuagint. Because the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Older Testament. It's the bridge between the two. So I looked at this one word, for uh, 4100, the derivative of pistis, just to see. And it's amazing what came up. Amuna was one of them. But one more importantly. This is Shema. It's the Old Testament 8085. 
you ever get a chance to look it up? But guess what? I'm going to share with uh, that with you too. Shema means to hear, listen, and obey. Hear, listen, and obey. Or the way that I would tell my girls is pay attention with the immediate attempt to obey. <laughs> Let me say that again. Pay attention with the immediate intent to obey. Obeying is not an option. It is the immediate byproduct. You're just, you're just looking for the direction to obey, not whether or not you need to. So this commitment preceding revelation or understanding begins with the word Shema. The work of God is this, to listen with the intent of immediately obeying the one he has sent. And who has been sent? Jesus, his son. Therefore, he is this professor that not only has gotten up in front of us and the entire world and intellectually grasped the ideas and concepts of God's will, he has demonstrated it all the way into death and back into life. This, saints, is what we are called to follow into death so that we can go into life. My children can benefit from me explaining to them the end result of what I'm asking them to obey. And at times, I can choose to reveal that. But it's in their best interest that they just obey what I'm telling them, that they schmuck. Brandon, what's the uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, the anthem of Israel? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the, the constitutional element that everyone who's ever belonged to Israel has. And that begins with the word Shema. Because in this idea of Passover, once again, here's another element that's being weaved into John 6. That Israel stood at the mountain and God spoke his word with intent for them to obey. And what he was asking them to do is commit to his word before they had the full revelation of what was to come. Commit to his word before you have the full revelation of what's to come. Now we're all born again in this room. And we can easily say you probably never anticipated the trials and tribulations, the hardships and heartaches that would come as a result of following Jesus. But also, you never anticipated the glory that God would get from rescuing you through them. And how much better your life is now because you've committed before knowing and understanding God's full revelation. Amen? Amen. Everybody getting this? Yeah. So this is the first step. We commit before it's revealed. Now, the teaching method within Israel look like this. Let's say, Cody, come see. Turn around and face everybody else. Face the family of God. Right? It's good for living. Now, Cody today, in this one moment, is going to be Rabbi Cody Steinberg. And he would be applied to by several disciples or Talmudim. 
and they would be called by him when he saw fit that one of these young men had the ability to emulate or uh, mirror image his walk with God, his understanding of who God is, but his Shema. He would look at one of the young disciples and say, follow me. So Gabe, I want you to stand up. And what this looked like is that Gabe would respond by actively pursuing to be behind him. Now, to stay where you're at, I want you to pay this image. The word follow me in Greek, and I'll just stick with Greek for now, means to go to or to follow at the back. To go to or follow at the back. I don't know about you guys, but from the third row on's perspective, who do you see? Everywhere that Cody goes, well, guess what? Turn to the side, both of you guys, to your right. Gabe, stand behind Cody. Everywhere that Cody goes, there will be someone following him at the back. So that every direction, every move, every step that Rabbi Cody Steinberg makes, Gabriel Scholenberg is able to follow him and emulate him in every single way. So please sit down, guys. Thank you. When Jesus called his disciples, he did not call them to step to the side or step in front of him. He asked them to follow behind him, so close that the dust that he would kick up would fall upon their head. This is the teaching of the dust of the rabbis. And the idea is this, is that our lives are to be so committed to Jesus without having to see what's in front of us that all anyone should see in front of us is Jesus. That's it. Any point in time that I step outside of following him, I lose the covering of my rabbi. I lose the ability to emulate and mimic exactly who he is. And this is for a lifetime. So the word, the idea, the function of follow me literally, physically look like committing without having to see the end result. So y'all ready for some more? Yeah. yeah. Come on. You might tell me the title of the message. Wholehearted. Wholehearted. All right. So the second facet for this is daily bread. So everybody knows the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread. Breakfast tacos. Amen. So go to verse 30 in chapter 6. So they asked him, oh, sorry about that. What miraculous sign then would you give that we may see it and believe you? Now, from that statement alone, do you see a level of shema? Do you see a level of wanting to listen with immediate obedience? Or is there still something that they are requiring God to prove himself to them before they obey? Keep that in mind. We, we highlighted that word earlier of test, right? That bread, multitudes of gathering, feeding, and test come to mind. What, what the Lord was doing, what Jesus was doing in this moment, 
is that even though he filled their stomachs, and the reason he replied to him like he did with the work of God is this to believe in the one he sent, it's because he wanted to expose the condition of their hearts. That they were wanting to exalt the plan ahead of the man. But God wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't let him. So, what will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Oh, Lord, they just used scripture on Jesus. They're trying to battle him for, uh, for what they really want. So, let's go to Exodus 16. Is everybody there? Sixteen verse one through four. Somebody read that for me. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, "If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt." There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. People are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instruction. Oh, my Lord. There's another word that has popped up. Test. God's provision. Is it in our lives because we grumble and God is looking for a furthering exposure of our hearts to see what's really inside of there? Or is our provision that comes from God as a means of shema, as a means of listening and obeying what he has to give? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, go ahead and feed them. I want to find out what's deep within their hearts. Turn to Deuteronomy 8. This one I'll read. Starting in verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your forefathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word. It comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Where have we seen that before? Somebody tell me. In the, the desert, where Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil. This was the first scripture that Jesus pulled up to combat temptation. So I want to walk you all through this temptation. Let's go to Luke 4. Now while you all turning there, I want to share with you real quick. In Deuteronomy, the word test, it's Old Testament, uh, Strong's number 52-54, and it appears nearly 40 times in the Old Testament. And it refers to God testing men's faith or faithfulness. Y'all see how those two words are tied together? Mm -hmm. A man's ability to trust God will look like his ability to follow God and do what he says to do, to be faithful. And being obedient. So is everybody in Luke chapter 4? Yes. 
All right, I'm not. Y'all wait for me. Come on, come on. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Mm. Four, four, four. I'm sorry. Yeah, four. Um, there we go. All right, Jesus, I'm in uh, the fourth verse one. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during these days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, something popped out to me. Did the devil ever say, eat it? Did the devil ever pick up bread and shove it in his mouth? And Jesus said, no, get thee behind. All he was asking him to do was be who he was. Right? Jesus had the authority. He had the power to speak to this thing, and a miraculous power happened. In fact, it's after this point, but essentially he did the same thing by feeding the 5,000. He took something that was and multiplied it into something that could not be other than a miracle itself. Y'all see the tie-in? Yeah. He was asking him to be who he really was, but the difference is it was at the will of Satan. It was outside of the will of God. This is the equivalent of Gabriel stepping outside Cody and doing it his way rather than God's way. In fact, the, the phrase that jumps out to me here and further down, he said, if you are the son of God. So what gave Jesus the ability to resist the temptation? And temptation not just to eat. Because I don't know about you, but every man, if you look at him toe-to-toe -to -toe and eye-to-eye -to -eye and say, if you are a man, won't you do this? How do you think that man is going to respond? Well, I, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to prove I'm a man. The temptation wasn't just for hunger alone. The temptation was to prove that he was the son of God. And that by doing so, he would shut the devil up. I don't know about you, but I like to make the devil shut up. I don't like you. But what he did is respond with daily bread. Let me back up a little bit. Up to the age of 30, he grew in wisdom and in stature. And by fellowshipping with his father, which we see when he was 12 in the temple, he was about his father's business, right? He told his mom that. Because of his fellowship with his father on a daily basis, he was the word of God, but it was also flowing and churning within him. He had the substance already at work in him. He didn't just memorize it with great intellect. He was the word because he lived in the word. Come on, he was the word because he lived in the word. And we have that same ability to do in Jesus. That if we are willing to commit to God's ways before we understand the fulfillment of them, and on a daily basis demonstrate that commitment by saying, Lord, your word is higher than mine, it's higher than anybody else's. It's only with your word that I can live and move and have my being. And part of that living and moving and having your being is being able to take on the temptations and the weights that will be thrown at you. Isn't that the true time of testing? 
is that whenever your flesh is starved of what it's want, your desires, your ambitions are starved of what they want. And they may rightfully belong to you. It might even be God's will for you, but you can't have them. And yet, you fight the temptation to give it to yourself. So let's look at the next one. Number two. We'll read further down. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. <coughs> little side note here. Did Jesus quote a paragraph? Did he quote chapter and verse? He quoted the living word of God. And it was living inside of him. It was him. It's no different than you and I. As we swim in God's word, it lives in us. And immediately, we will know what to do because the spirit that he put inside of us will move us and show us, like Jesus promised as the counselor, Show us how to respond to every situation. Y'all want to be equipped with that? Yes. Now, the, the, what I picked up on this facet of it, the devil was tempting him with all the kingdoms of the world. Well, after everything is said and done, isn't that what Jesus will have anyway? In fact, he will present God, or back to God, everything that has now been subdued and conquered. So what he was tempting him with is the early receipt of an inheritance. That before you have to suffer Jesus, before you have to endure all these events, you don't really have to. Let's bypass suffering. Let's bypass perseverance. Let's bypass maturity altogether. And let's just be complete. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Worship or barach. Submit to, bow down, fall down before the Lord your God only. Only. Third one. Verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, there's that phrase again. He said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know what the devil was really asking him to do? The same way of inheritance. This was the pinnacle, the fulfillment of Jesus' call. Not falling down from the top of the temple and being rescued by angels in some Hollywood theatrical moment. But what he was saying is, put your life at risk and before the heavens and earth, God will save you and you will be honored by all. Isn't that what the resurrection was? It was, once again, not an early receipt of inheritance. It was the early receipt of the fulfillment of his call. That's what he was tempting with. If you are the son of, the, of God, I know this, is, this can happen. God rescue you. Look, it says it right here in this word. You step outside of God's will and try to fulfill your own call. 
that's what he was tempting. An early resurrection. Everybody still in Luke 4? Yeah. All right. So if I had some phrases to say, some of these I gather, but I also uh, added to. God is always required that we commit to the man, not the plan. The king, not the thing. The captain in charge, not the ship or the barge. The one who makes us free, not the fruit on the tree. The one who breathed life in us and not the formation of dust. Our commitment to God's word and saying him and him alone, worshiping the Lord God alone and doing that day after day after day will bring about the promises that God has set apart for you, the good works he has set apart for you. I don't know about you guys, but I raise my hand to, I am still waiting. I am still waiting to be released from secular work so that I can do this and everything else that our ministry does on a full-time basis. And yet I still have to carry the burden of working full-time. And there are times I get discouraged. There are times I get pressed down. But the, the last step is a byproduct that God has so faithfully put in front of me and ingrained and disciplined me in. That if I'm faithful and committed to his work and I'm daily washing myself with his promises, daily washing, reminding my heart, my soul of what God has designed me to do, which is to propel others into his presence. Those two combined will give me a firm grasp of being able to hold on to what God has promised. Do you guys want a firm grasp? Yes. Well, this is that last step to getting wholehearted. Let's read about how Jesus did it. Let's go to back to back to John. Chapter 6, verse 33. Actually, starting in verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Let me repeat that. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Having a firm grasp on God's call as a result of being committed and daily washing yourself with his word is going to give you the confidence that you need to understand exactly who you are and what you've been called to do. And not crowd, not criticism, not anything else can convince you otherwise because God has made it plain, but you put yourself in the position for God to make it plain to you. That's our duty. It's not to fulfill things on our own or go grab what we think is God's plan and make it happen for ourselves. We're just called to Shema, listen with the intent of obeying. Jesus had such a firm grasp that he was able to say, I am this bread of life. I am the one sent and came down from heaven to give the entire world life. I don't know about you guys, but that's a huge call. 
Amen. And it came at a great price. Not just the shedding of blood. That happens all the time. This was the one and only shedding of innocent blood. Purely innocent blood. So let's keep reading. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not shma. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That sounds a lot like what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. After three times of being pressed, after three times of the heaviest weight that any man could ever have upon him about his call, surpassing even the moment of being led by the, the Spirit into the desert and tempted. Now in the Garden of Gethsemane, he echoed those very words because he had a firm grasp on what God has already said. Amen. He had a firm grasp on what God has already said. There's a beautiful word uh, when it comes to grasp. Y'all remember that video we watched by Eric Ludi, Rock Kazak? Be strong and courageous. This is what was used to tell Joshua. Joshua 1, verse 3, 4, 7, I think 9. Rock, kazak, be strong. Take up the promises of God and hold them firmly to the point it cannot be snatched out of your hand. It is our duty to be faithful to God. That we prove ourselves faithful to him, not that he proves himself faithful to us first. I don't know about you, but God's the only one that has ever lived forever. He is the only one that is not sustained by any other element that exists. He is the element that sustains. It's the other way around. So just like the people were looking for a miraculous sign, Lord, show me, prove to me that this is your will. Prove to me that you will come through for me. That sounds a lot like grumbling in the desert. Mm. But it has to be turned around. It's, Lord, no matter what, even unto my life being gone, that death fall upon me, I know that you can rescue me. I know that the promises that you have for me will be sustained and God will fulfill it. God will fulfill it. Amen. The vision he's given this church, the vision he's given me, despite what happens to anybody in here, God will fulfill it. Amen. Amen. It's not built to one, one man except Jesus himself. And whether I'm here, Eric's here, or you guys are all gone, God's purpose will remain for what has been started here. Amen. <clears throat> An inspiring story to me has been one of Pat Robertson. I've been reading his book, Shout It From The Housetops. And the statement that he made is that God showed to him and proved him over several years of banging his head up against the wall that it's not about building a radio or television station. It's about building a testimony for God's name. Saints, sometimes we just miss the whole purpose of why we're doing what we're doing. Why am I married? Why do I have kids? Why do I have a job? Why do we try or why do we suffer? There are some immediate benefits. Yes, we got food on the table. Yes, I'm happy and blessed to have a family. But that is not the end result. A husband's responsibility is not to make his wife happy. Is the husband's responsibility is to make the wife holy for his name's sake. 
The reason the blood of Jesus was shed was not to make us happy. It was to make us holy for his name's sake. That when eyes are looked upon us, they see Jesus in front of us. And that gives him glory. At the end of the age, whenever everything is revealed and like Cody and, and Gabe turn to the side and you actually see Gabe, you are in wonder and amazement how it was done in the first place. That should be the testimony that God is building in each and every person's life. That it happened despite me. Amen. It happened outside of me. Yeah. Because God required me to be committed to his plan before I ever understood it fully. This was the fault of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That we were designed by God to follow him without knowing. Here's a prime example. God saw, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. God recognized that. Not Adam. And he said, let us make, or he said, let's, let's get Adam away. So he asked Adam, lay down. Adam obeyed. And he pulled from Adam's side to help me. And it wasn't until she was formed and standing next to him that then his eyes were opened. Then he got the revelation. Ah, mother of the living. Now I understand your function. But what if he had said, Lord, prove to me that you can do this and what exactly this woman's going to do. It's the other way around. Let's get to 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Guys, if Jesus is the bread of life, and the function and design of who he is is to bring life to the world, then we are also called to the exact same thing. If ever you doubt or caught up in the minutia of what God has called me to do, step back and see the bigger picture. It's going to require you to die. It's going to require you to give up your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, so that life can be given to the world. You know what this looks like on a daily basis? This looks like not going to sit down and watch TV and ignoring that phone call from a close friend who needs your help, but getting up and answering it and be willing to go in the middle of the night to do them, do with them and for them something you'd rather not do. Mm -hmm. It comes in those daily exercises because in that moment, the word of God should spring up inside of you and you realize it is better to give and to receive. It, uh, the love of God is this, the, uh, the, a man lay down his life for his brother. And it's not just the, the end-all, be-all act of being a martyr for your brother, but on a daily basis, dying to self. That is the daily function of living in God's word and eating that daily bread. How does God's word apply to this? How does it apply to this? 
sometimes I, I frustrate people because when they're bringing me a circumstance, a problem in their life, that the first thing I'll say is, what does the word say about it? And you see the look come over their face, like, oh, I've never thought about that. But the word doesn't say anything about, you know, the transmission going out on a car. Yes, it does. It says, those who believe, who follow me, will never go hungry. They will never thirst. That means you will never be without what you need from God in that moment. Here's a life example from me, right? Everybody knows that I own a Ford truck. That kind of says it all. <laughs> Here I am, early part of, of last week. I start having some problems with my truck. Spencer and I were driving down the road. And I, I've done a lot of work to this truck just to keep it running and certain issues that happen at 200,000 miles. But I thought I got them all fixed. In fact, every single time something happens, my first thought is, oh man, I gotta tell Cass. And she's gonna go, I told you not to buy that truck. And then I stand up and say, what is God's will? Look, it's testing, perseverance, maturity, completeness. I'll have a whole truck and we're done. <laughs> but there came a point in my week where I was so focused on fixing my truck and so determined to research every resource and nook and cranny of the web to find out what I could do to fix my truck and get it back on the road right now, that I was missing opportunities for family, for work, for ministry, and I was not available to be used by God because I was consumed with not being hungry. I was consumed with not being thirsty and I had to provide that for myself. I wasn't going to let anybody else do it. I went to Home Depot, Radio Shack, uh, several different places to find the right kind of things to make this specialty tool, this one tool. And if everything worked out right, I was going to come out way ahead. It would cost $3 to make this specialty tool. But the only one place online that had this specialty tool to fix my truck cost 150 bucks. And I was like, Ain't no way I'm going to pay $150 where I can pay for $3. No. And so I labored. And the hard part was that as I labored, as I went through these things, the peace of God evaporated. I did exactly what I demonstrated here. Jesus was leading one way, and I just stepped right out to the side and said, Lord, I'm going to fix my problems. And after about the second or third day, the conviction of God fell on me. And things were just working out, and you know, I felt like a five-year-old. I would sit down and pout and cry and everything else. Literally, because it was hot and I was frustrated. But at that moment, God said, why don't you just trust me? Why don't you try to fix everything yourself? In this hope of not being a burden to anybody. In this hope of, you know, being an example before the body of Christ that, yes, we can. I was nullifying God's ability to provide for me outside of me. I was shoving aside this daily bread. I was asking for revelation before I was really wanting to commit that God would take care of me. I was consumed with, I would take care of me. And because I got that out of order, I was like a flailing cat on a pole trying to grab a hold of God's will. It wasn't there. But the minute I pushed it aside and I said, you know what? I'm just hemmed in here. 
The parts don't even come in until Monday afternoon. We got foundations. I won't be able to fix this till Tuesday. Just gotta trust that God provides. And within 24 hours, with a loan vehicle and also financially, God made the way. He met it. He was just waiting for me to commit, waiting for me to get out of the way or fall back in line with him to follow at his back so that he could show me how to have a firm grasp of what he's wanting for me right then and there. So I don't know if you guys can relate to that. Yes. If you don't, buy a Ford. <laughs> All right, Kazakh, Old Testament 2388, to fasten upon, to seize, be strong, figuratively, figuratively courageous, causatively strengthen, cure, help, repair, fortify. Here's one that we may like, obstinate, mm -hmm. to bind, restrain, or conquer. A firm grip is equal to being wholehearted. That this process of being committed before you understand, daily walking in that commitment, enables you to have a wholehearted, a firm kazakh of God's will for your life or God's will for that moment. I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I only have the next step. I don't have the full plan. Uh, I'm, I'm just not very good with managing the, the bank account of God's future for my life. I tell people all the time, if I would have fulfilled my plan for my life that I planned 10 years ago, I would have sold myself short, way short. But because he has enabled me to be committed to daily wash and walk, I've got a firm understanding that no matter where he leads me, it's gonna be a lot better than I could ever plan. Amen. Amen. All right, so everybody go do it around me. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now this is where we were earlier. But I, want, I want to show you guys something. This is beautiful. As I begin to study these things, uh, the way I, I begin to put this together is, once again, I'm visual. So I had these three things that were stirring inside of me. That early last week, God began to stir about daily bread. And then I had those situations with my truck. God began to stir me about committing before I understand fully. And then here recently, it was about that firm grasp, that holding on ability to God's will. I was talking with Cassie the other night. I said, I know all these things, these three things can tie together. I just don't know how. So as I begin to, to put it on a, a piece of paper and draw big bubbles around them, I begin to put the different facets of each one. And then it all began to come together. And I don't know, I, I just felt like this was something that uh, was true in my life, but but also very much so in the Word. So I'll begin to pull it together, and John 6 jumped out. But this morning, this is where it gets beautiful. In one verse of one chapter, it's said in its entirety, all three of those elements. So Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess Kazakh, the land that the Lord has promised on oath to your forefathers. I have the word follow. This is committed 
before understanding. I have the word live. Man shall not live on bread alone. And I have the word possess. This is the firm grasp, the holding on, the kazak of what God's will is. So right there in one verse, God knew the whole time that what he's building inside of us, not just me, was that we need to daily walk in this commitment to him, which also looks like commitment to each other so that we can firmly hold on to what God has given us and not relinquish one ounce of land back to the enemy. I don't want to be robbed from. I don't want to be stolen from. But I can tell you that I will advance everything that God has given me. I will follow, I will live, and I will possess everything that God has given me. But saints, we've got to do it His way. And as seen in that one verse, His way is right. His way is right. Don't be deceived. Don't let situation or circumstance ever tell you otherwise. That you cannot provide enough to fulfill or feed God's will for your life. It's Him that provides. And instead of asking Him to prove Himself to you, won't you prove yourself to the Lord by obeying fully what He said? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's live wholeheartedly.